0: If you're on the recording, hello, we've just read chapter 4 of Amos. It will probably serve you well to press pause now and read it yourself and then come back. Okay. So, the way that uh, Amos begins this chapter is with... Uh, three pictures. And I'm not going to uh, tell you where he's going to go so we're just going to dive straight in um, and we'll pick up what his point is as we get towards uh, the end. So, the first picture that um, Amos uh, paints here is a picture of opulence chapter 4 verse 1. I mentioned last week uh, that that phrase uh, cows of Bashan is not um, intrinsically derogatory. The cows of Bashan were healthy cows, well-fed cows, good cows. Uh, In this culture, instead, uh, it's a way of saying that they are healthy and prosperous. And we can see their lavish lifestyle, uh, this prosperous um, picture, by their speech as well. So first we have the phrase, you cows of Bashan," and then we have this uh, statement of theirs. Bring us some drinks, they say to their husbands. I think what it's meant to be, what we're meant to see that Amos is putting before us is a picture of Uh, wealth and prosperity, its opulence, that's where he takes us in, in our mind's eye. But at the same time, with this picture of wealth and prosperity, there is an ugly underbelly. It is prosperity, but they are women who oppress the poor and crush the needy. That's quite ugly. Opulence on the outside, but it's propped up by corruption, and the Lord sees and names the ugliness. Now, the second picture, I'm going to jump down to verse 4 and 5, uh, is a picture of religiosity. You can see that there are multiple sacred sites. There's Bethel, there's Gilgal. The sacrifices are free-flowing. There are even free-will offerings. You can sit there, and brag about your free-will offerings. Uh, just as a, a side note, leaven is not technically unlawful for a thank offering. You might think, ah, oh, they're offering leavened bread. And if you know your Bible, you probably, you might be thinking, ah, that's leavened bread. That's not right. With the thank offering, you are allowed to offer leavened bread. Uh, it's a regular affair. It's every morning. You see, bring your sacrifices every morning. Um, and so there's a picture of overt external religiosity. But here again, uh, there is a problem, because it's an empty religiosity. Again, it's a picture that is tainted. And we see that uh, by the bragging and the boasting that are happening, uh, which are not compatible with the sacrifices of the Lord. See there it says in verse 5, burn leavened bread as a thank offering, and brag about your free offerings, Boast about them, you Israelites. Right. Tell everyone, is another way to uh, translate it. Tell, make it known to people. Uh, that's not fitting. That's a, that's a corrupted picture. The sacrifices of the Lord are about brokenness over sin, humility, reverence, and treating the Lord for his mercy. This is what the right internal posture should be like not boasting about how well we're doing it. Uh, So worship on the outside requires its internal correspondence for it to be uh, true worship. Otherwise, without such, it becomes vanity. And so the Lord is not commending them here. Uh, The Lord is actually mocking them here. He's making a joke of them. This is what you love to do. With both of these pictures, we see that they're not right and we're meant to feel that. We're meant to feel that discord in both of these pictures. They're like the queen in soiled rags. The picture's wrong. Prosperity, but it's uglied by lies on the tax return, underpaid employees. And disproportionate bonuses. It's religious behaviour, but it's made hollow by arrogant, self-congratulating hearts. So this is two pictures of sin. There's two pictures if we want to know what displeases the Lord and what are distorted pictures of our human duty. We can look here and see. And so that's two pictures, and sandwiched right in the middle of them is another picture, which is also not right, and that's a picture of the days that are coming. The Sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you, cows of Bashan, will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with the hooks. You will each go straight out through the breaches in the wall and you will be cast out toward Harmon, declares the Lord. This is a very unpleasant picture. Uh, the going out through the breaches in the wall indicates defeat. The wall is broken down and that's a not a nice feeling to be thinking about your city with its broken walls and the enemy invading. And then you being carried out of these breaches with hooks. It's a bit of debate over what the image is actually about, Um, but I think either way, whatever imagery it's meant to be, whether it's meant to be that they are like butchered cows that go out on butchers' stakes or whether they are meant to be like um, fish and the practice of perhaps having hooks in your lip uh, as you are in a, in, a, in a queue behind one after the other uh, being led out of the wall. Either way, uh, it's a picture of defeat and shame. And it's not a good picture. That's the first little cluster of pictures that Amos puts before us right at the beginning of chapter four and that's where Israel currently is that's what they, Amos wants to say this is what what you look like Israel and this is what's coming but significantly and for our purposes tonight Israel haven't just arrived here, coincidentally. This has been a journey of non-responsiveness, and that's key. The severity of total defeat and exile is the last of the Lord's actions, not his first. And so until now, the warnings have been many And that's where Amos is going to go next. So he's going to show us now, from verses 6 onwards, a picture of the past. And the reason why this is important is because Amos has a message of finality. That's largely, uh, much of his prophecy, uh, concerns that complete and inescapable destruction. And I've mentioned that in previous week, so I won't lay that point now, Um, and he's going to say more about that in the future, but when your message is that heavy, perhaps it's uh, worthy for Amos to uh, illustrate how Israel has got to this point. And so he wants to now move to a picture of the past, And we'll spend the rest of our time here uh, looking at what this portion of Amos' prophecy uh, teaches us. Sorry, I've a picture of the people, that's what we've just done. Uh, And then now we're going to a picture of the past. Okay, so we're looking now from verses 6 onwards. And the first thing I'd like to do is just quickly note the structure uh, for these verses. Notice the refrain, five times, as a side note, another one, Amos loves numbers, and five is a number that he likes. Do ponder that in your own spare time. Now, five times we hear the rephrase, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Did you notice that when I read it out? You can see it at the end of those verses, at the end of verse six. You see it there? And then again at the end of verse uh, eight is the next time and then at the end of verse nine at the end of verse 10 and at the end of verse 11. five times and in each of those little uh at the end uh, just before each of those uh refrains we see that the lord does five things Uh, And five times, Israel does not return to the Lord. So, let's have a quick look at the things that the Lord does. Uh, He brings famine, verse 6, there's no food. He brings drought, verse 7, that's no water. Uh, He brings uh, blight, which is crop, I think it's uh, crop failure. In verse 9a he brings locusts in verse 9b uh, he brings the plagues of Egypt in verse 10 uh, and he brings defeat and death by enemies uh, in verses 10b and 11 <coughs> that's the first thing I want to note just as so you can see there the structure and now I'm going to read some of the background to this section from Deuteronomy 24. Because uh, what's happening here is this, uh, the things that the Lord is doing to Israel correspond to uh, warnings that he uh, promised would happen, things that would happen to them, were they to disobey the covenant that he made with them. So we're going to go to Deuteronomy and chapter 28. You don't have to turn there because I'm going to um, paraphrase some of it. It's quite a long chapter. It'll take too long to read it all out. But that's where we can go to read about the curses that would come upon Israel uh, were they to disobey um, the Lord's commands. So I've trimmed out a bit, but um, I've done it in such a way so that we can fit it into our time together tonight, but still capture the connection. So just listen carefully as I read out from Deuteronomy 28. This is what it says. However, Moses is talking to them, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. Your basket And your kneading trough will be cursed, the crops of your land, and the calves of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to, until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction, but flee from them in seven. The Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors, festering sores and the itch from which you cannot be cured. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little, because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather the grapes, because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil, because the olives will drop off. Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. They will be a sign and a wonder to you and your descendants forever, because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity. Therefore, in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you.
1: The Lord will bring a nation
0: against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like a swooping Like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young, they will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land the Lord your God is giving you, He will bring on you all the diseases of Egypt that you dreaded, and they will cling to you. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations, from one end of the earth to the other. I hope you can see the connection. Deuteronomy 28 is a lot longer than that. But they were the bits, some points of connection there that I kept in. And this, if we come back to Amos 4, is what Amos is alluding to in this chapter. He's saying, look, the covenant curses have been coming upon you just as the Lord said, but you have not repented. That's quite clear, and that's what he's doing. That's what's happening. Now, what I want to do is I want to draw attention to some observations, in fact, about the Lord from this section uh, that I think will be of help to us. The first observation so, we're having a look at the picture of the past, and I think that we can see some things about the Lord. The first is God's faithfulness to his word. The Lord has done what he said he would do. Uh, We see the steadiness of the Lord when we contrast him with ourselves, and particularly in this matter of remaining faithful to the truth when it is hard. Telling the truth is easy when it's a comforting word, but a hard word? Remaining faithful is easy when you know the recipient will be happy with you, but faithfulness to what is right is a lot harder when you know the person will potentially be hostile to you in return. But the Lord is unwavering in his faithfulness to his word and to the cause of justice even when it's painful for his people. And this faithfulness is actually a two-edged sword. It can be a cause of great comfort or fear, depending on your relationship to God's word. It's a comfort because when we rest in his promises of protection or Rather, if we are resting in his promises of protection, it's a comfort because we can be sure he will not fail. The Lord is a God who keeps his word. And if he keeps it here, how much more, when he keeps it, will he keep it for blessing? But the other side is that the faithfulness of the Lord is a terror if we have not trusted in his provision of mercy because it is true that he will fulfill his warning to destroy all the self-reliant people from his world so one thing we see is we see the faithfulness of the Lord to his word the second thing we see is we also see in these acts in this little section uh, the um, The mystery of God's power. Notice the things that are under his control here in these verses. In verse 6, it's the crops. I gave you empty stomachs, he says. He has precise control over the weather in verse 7, such that he can send rain on one town and withhold rain from another town. He has power over the animals in verse 9. He can actually send, he can govern the locusts. He can tell the locusts where to go. And he also has power over the plague, which could consist of disease or natural disaster. It's a reference to Egypt. We see that in verse 10. I sent plagues among you. And we see the power of the Lord over people, in verse 10 as well. He says, I killed your young men with the swords. People, enemies, real nations, are going and defeating the Israelites, and the Lord saying, I did that. I have power over people's actions, their sinful actions before you go to puzzle, pause and marvel for a moment and let God's word sink in. Just think about what he's saying about himself and what he has done here. This window that Amos is giving us into, um, into the Lord is completely in line with the overall force of Scripture. We could quote numerous passages uh, that are, are of a very similar value. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that Jesus is sustaining all things by his powerful word. All things are held together and continue their course by him. And for the Lord, however, this doesn't mean that he's sinning like a sort of partner to crimes. And part of the way we know that is in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. We hear that all his ways are just. Everything he does is right. Good and upright is the Lord. And so our job in reading it is not to pit these things against one another but to reconcile them with one another. One way, I think, to do this is to see that the reality is that no one is owed anything. None of us are owed anything by the Lord. Rather, we owe God every single breath. He made us with an aim, and he has every right to expect a certain outcome from us. We don't and haven't been given the freedom to make up our own meaning for our existence. And I realise that this is not what you hear on the street. Because we haven't done this, it means that without Jesus, we have forfeited every right to life. We're not owed anything. Everything's the Lord's. But this isn't a math puzzle to work out. And so I don't think that's the proper response. I think the proper response to this, to God's power, is awe, humility, trust, and to cast ourselves Onto God's provision of mercy in Christ. The third thing we see in this picture of the past is the patience of God. <coughs> time and time and time and time and time again. And that's the point of walking through the events and repeating that phrase, yet you have not returned to me. But the worth of God's patience is magnified by the object of his patience, isn't it? Which, in this case, is that ugly opulence And empty religiosity that we saw earlier. Patience with cuteness is easy, right? So cute. Stop it, don't do that. All right, all right. I've been patient, we've done it again, okay? Yes, it was a cute little smile. But when I see the real stubborn heart, Or malice behind the person and their actions, how do we feel then? I think it's almost like we grade patience. It's like some people deserve it and others don't. Patience to the undeserved is precisely what the Lord demonstrates here and I think that magnifies The worth of his his patience and when we see this kind that this is the kind of patience that the lord has with us it changes how we think about patience with others now just because we see patience of the lord here it doesn't mean it's a patience that we are to presume upon i think again it's a patience to marvel at to give thanks for to emulate, and to repent in. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and following, uh, verse 9, sorry, and following, uh, Peter is addressing the apparent delay of Jesus' return, and he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise, as some count slowness. So, the Lord's not slow in sending Jesus to return but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so he's saying, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. That's what his patience is all about. Not to presume upon, it's about giving you time to repent before judgment. And this is a gracious God. Fourthly, we can see in this picture the heart of God toward his people. And we see it in that repeated refrain, but you did not return to me. The Lord is aiming at restoration. He's looking for relationship. You see what he says? But you didn't return to me. You did not return to me. It's not just to morality. You didn't return to morality. You didn't return to me. So it's not punishment from irritation, it's not mechanical, not spiteful, not grumpiness. The Lord is keeping his word because he is just, but he is aiming at restoration because he is love. This is national discipline that's happening here. National discipline with Israel that is aiming for restoration. And I think there are implications for our parenting here too. Does the Lord withhold pain from his people? No. Does he aim for their good? Yes. Is he measured and true to his word? Yes. Does he bring his heaviest discipline the first time? No. And I suspect some of us need to see the disciplinary hand of God here to put some courage and conviction in our parenting. Others will need to see the patience of the Lord to put some tenderness in our character. Either way, I think it's clear, the Lord disciplines his people. It's painful, but his aim is for their restoration. We see the heart of God towards his people. He wants them back. And finally, in this picture of the past, we see the stubbornness of sinners to the will of God. As people, we are capable of a kind of self-deception that makes us ignorant of the warning signs of God's disapproval. And we need to pray for God's mercy to help us see clearly. I think Deuteronomy is pretty clear. How could Israel be so ignorant? I think we also see in our stubbornness that our refusal of the good. God's laws are ways of justice. Why would Israel not walk in them? It's the folly of sin. The Lord is the God of creation. Why would you not turn and trust in him? Being near him is life. And so from one perspective, the the disciplines here are not arbitrary. In fact, they reflect the removal of order. When you move away from God, you move away from all of his goodness as well. You move away from Peace with others. A world that works. Because there is no good place that you can go that doesn't belong to or isn't governed by God. He owns all the territory and is present everywhere. There is no life outside of God. All good life we experience is lent by God to us. The rain is his rain. There's no place you can go and enjoy good weather apart from him. And so the disciplines reflect the path away from God, the God of all creation. That's stubbornness of Israel and stubbornness of human sin. And this stubbornness is where this chapter is driving. That's what we're meant to get to by the end of it. We're meant to feel those refrains We're meant to see the patience of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord, his faithfulness to his word, his heart for restoration, and we're meant to see, gosh, yes, you are a stubborn people. Look how they continue to live in this ugly opulence and empty religiosity, even in the face of such a good and faithful and gracious and patient God. The Lord has been so patient, but Israel is so stubborn. And that is why destruction is now coming fully. So finally, the rope has run out. And I think that's where we've been moving in this chapter. It's been moving towards verse 12. It's a kind of climactic moment. Therefore, right, he's drawing down, therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. You are so stubborn, and I have been so patient. Now I am coming. And the reality is that israel does go into exile about 50 years after amos's prophecy give or take but there's a deeper reality that the lord is talking about just note these words prepare to meet your god prepare to meet your god now i'm coming But the reality is we have to fast forward about 600 years before this visitation actually happens. And Israel is in for something remarkable. Jesus is the Lord coming. I'll read the beginning of Mark chapter 1, which we're learning and listening to in the mornings. This is what it says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Ready for this? Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. After me comes the one. Jesus is the Lord coming. But that's not the only remarkable thing. And it may come as a surprise, but he does come for judgment. And Dan mentioned this in the mornings a couple of weeks back. He does come for judgment, but that's not the most remarkable thing. The most remarkable thing is that Jesus comes to take judgment on himself. This is one of the mysteries of the incarnation. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, but he comes as representing Israel. This is why Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness, just like Israel was. So, when Jesus dies, Israel is destroyed. Judgment has come. Jesus also comes as the temple of God. He's the place where God and man meet. When Jesus dies, the temple is destroyed. And so, judgment happens on Israel, on the temple. And this is a reminder that the cross is the place where the promises of both salvation and judgment come together. Jesus takes the punishment, we get the salvation. He comes and justice is upheld, but a way to God is still made. The Lord says... Prepare to meet your God. And this is a scary moment. But because of the Lord's steadfast love and compassion, Jesus comes full of grace and truth. You are so stubborn. This is part of the point of the history of Israel, to demonstrate that we need help. You are so stubborn and you will not turn to me. So I am coming to get you. And so here again, we see the heart of God toward his people. As Paul says in Titus, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. so, where are we in Amos? This is another call for repentance. Because the Lord is coming again. And he's coming again for salvation and judgment. He's being patient with all people right now. And this is uh, the opportunity for us to repent and trust in His Saviour. The day will come when this opportunity ends. The rope will really run out. The offer of someone else taking your judgement is available now, but not then. We too need to prepare to meet our God because of the grace of God through Jesus we can with humble confidence I'm going to pray Father in heaven you're incredible you're a great God what you have done through your son that you came to get us and you sent your son to die for us. We could not say that we were or are so much better than Israel. We also were lost like Paul described, that's us. And we needed you to come and save us. Thank you that you came in mercy and took the judgment upon yourself, Jesus. Help us to be outward looking, to think of others who don't know about your salvation. We pray that you would help us to be people that point to your Son, Father, as the way. To receive mercy now so that we can be prepared to meet you on that day.